Facebook allows us to keep in contact with people we might not ordinarily keep in contact with, you know. And a couple years ago, I got a friend request from an old buddy of mine in high school. I kind of forgot about him. His name's Scott. And I saw the picture of Scott, and I barely even recognized him. I was like, is that the same guy? Like, I, I couldn't believe he was ripped. I mean, he was just... He was just buff, and so I friended him, I went through, and I looked at his story, and I'm thinking, man, you know, I, I kind of like to be in that kind of shape, you know? Maybe I should hit the weights and stuff. Let me, let me see what Scott's doing, and, and I scrolled through and just kind of read his story, and at one point, he had some before and after pictures that he went through this phase, maybe a lot of us go through, that as we age a little bit, the metabolism doesn't work quite as fast as it did when we were teenagers, and so he, he reached a point, and he said, you know, it's time for me to do something about that. So Scott, he posts, like, his journey of what he did. And, I mean, he was waking up at, like, 5 o'clock in the morning, running a couple miles, then going to work, and after work hitting the gym and lifting weights. And he was on some kind of program and all this kind of stuff, eating kale and spinach all day long. And after I read all that, I thought to myself, you know, I don't know if it's worth it. Maybe you've had that kind of experience, right, where you meet someone and they're just so talented, they're so gifted at whatever their skill, their craft is, and you think, yeah, I'd like to be like them. I'd like to be able to do what they do. Maybe it's a musician that you've met, maybe, maybe some kind of arts and crafts thing, uh, maybe a speaker or something. You think, I'd like to be them. I'd like to be able to have some of those gifts, some of, their, some of those skills. But then when you find out the price that they've had to pay, and you realize they just eat, sleep, and drink whatever it is that they're just passionate about. You see their devotion to it. And you think, I don't know, maybe I'll just settle for average. I'm convinced that one of the reasons why the church in America, on average, churches in America, over one church per day closes her doors I'm convinced that one of the reasons why that happens, one of the reasons why people stop going to church, why some people just attend church several times a year and consider themselves members, is not because of exhaustion, not because of attacks by the enemy, but because this fog has crept in, that there's a malaise that comes about, and the church begins to fail to understand what her mission really is. And we settle for other things. We settle for average. And we say, oh, that's, this is good enough. I, I am a good enough Christian if. The church is good enough if. And we settle for average because the church drifts away from the glorious grand mission that God has called us to. And then after a while, the churches, they close their doors. This morning, we're continuing our series in the book of Acts, Blueprints of a Healthy Church, what a healthy church looks like. And we've been going through the book of Acts and we've been watching how God has designed this transformational church to impact the world. And if you're in any kind of a spiritual fog this morning, uh, if you've kind of drifted away from your mission or maybe you just have questions, well, hey, I'm a Christian, but what does that mean? Then I hope that this message this morning will encourage you. That it will just kind of propel you to live out the mission that God has called you to. And if you're on mission, I mean, if you're a Christian and you're living faithfully each week, doing the work that God has called you to do, then I hope this morning is just gas in your tank to get out another week and just make more and better disciples of Jesus Christ. 
So we're going to begin this morning in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Acts 2, 42 through 47. And you'll remember just kind of where we've been that before Jesus ascended into heaven, that he clarified the mission for his church. He said, hey, you got to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. But then once he comes, he's going to give you power. And you're going to go out and you're going to be on the witness stand. You will be testifying about who I am and what I've done. And you're going to do it here in Jerusalem and in all the whole province of Judea. Then you're going to go to those people you'd never thought you'd go to. You'll go to the Samaritans. And then after that, this church is going to be a launching pad that's going to reach all over the earth. And so this happens, and then in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is given, and we saw that last week where Jesus, he's left, but now the Holy Spirit comes upon the people, and they begin testifying. They're doing just what Jesus said they would do. They're testifying about who Jesus is, and it's done in even a miraculous way as the apostles begin speaking in foreign languages so that everyone there can understand the good news of the gospel. And we, it's this incredible thing because the church is born. And as the church is born and the gospel is spread, you have over 3,000 people who come to know Jesus. 3,000 spiritual newborns right there. You know, I can remember when our oldest, Emma, was born and we were in that hospital room. And as we were there and she was, Steph was about to give birth to Emma, there was the song playing there in the background, sing to the king. And I, I can still just hear that song playing as Emma was born and, and then just getting to hold her for the first time because there were these months of anticipation, you know. You just couldn't wait for the baby to arrive and here she is and you're holding her and she's beautiful. And then shortly thereafter, there came diapers. <laughs> and I had never changed a diaper before, you know. This is my first experience with that. And and just doing that and just looking at her, this reality set in that she is totally dependent upon us. That, that everything that she needs for life, we've got to provide it for her. I mean, if we don't feed her, she's not going to eat. If we don't clothe her, she's not going to have anything to wear. If we don't change her diaper, she's going to be a mess. I mean, everything, that we would be the ones just to provide everything for her. And as she grows, we will be the ones to, to train her, to teach her, to, to love her, to show her what it looks like to love God and to love others. Well, as this church is born, you've got 3,000 new spiritual babies. And here are the apostles, the leadership of the church. And they must teach these spiritual newborns what it looks like to love one another, what it looks like to love God, what it, what it means to be a Christian. They have to care for them, to teach them, to train them. They have to show this church who the church is supposed to be, what God has designed the church to be. It is the first church. And so we see these blueprints of a healthy church. So with that, let's go ahead and look. Acts 2, beginning in verses 42 through 47. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. 
And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So as these spiritual newborns were looking to the apostles for what life in Christ was to look like, for what, for what it meant to be a Christian, the apostles showed them. And, and they showed them that this is a life of devotion. It's a life of commitment. That it's a life of passionate involvement. A life of responsibility. The, the, the apostles showed this new church, these new spiritual babies. And you know, they've all got stories. They've all got backgrounds. Some of them probably have had hard lives, difficult lives. And they're showing them that the Christian life is not a life of excuses. That yeah, things are hard. You have a past. Things have been difficult. But the Christian life is not a life of excuses. It's a life of responsibility. That now you've been called into this church and you've been saved in order to play a part. That, that you have a role to play, that you've been gifted uniquely by the Holy Spirit so that you can be an encouragement to others. That we can be together and we can share this in common and that we can encourage one another. Jesus says that, yeah, I have freed you from your past so that you can make an incredible impact on people in their present and in the future. In the new church, they have this commitment, this devotion. And the first commitment, the first devotion is to the apostles' teaching. I, I think one of the reasons why the church exists in such a fog today is because the church no longer knows what to believe. I mean, the, you look at churches across America and preaching has fallen on hard times. I mean, even, even the word preaching, you know, if you say, oh, you're just preaching to somebody, it doesn't even have a good meaning anymore, Right? Like, oh, no, they're just preaching. Oh, well, well, that's a bad thing now. And you look at it, and, and you look at churches across the country, and you've got preachers who they, they get up and they, they may cite a text. They may read a passage, but then they just go on and preach their own self-help or whatever it is they want to say, just make their own point. But they are not faithfully expounding and explaining the scriptures. They're teaching whatever it is they want. And you can go to other churches, and they're teaching the scriptures, but you would think that you've just entered a funeral service because it's dry, and it's somber, and it's sad, and it's kind of depressing. It's stiff and dry. The Bible is anything but boring and stiff and dry. The Bible is life-giving. It is living. It is active. And to make it stiff and dry is sinful. And so, you know, we got preaching, and I've been in places and preached in numerous churches, and I get this comment sometimes. That, oh, pastor, I didn't fall asleep this morning. That's the standard for good preaching now. If you can keep people awake, you think you've done a good job. A mark of a healthy church is expectant worship. Expectant worship. That you come to church and you're excited to hear what the apostles are going to do. You're excited to hear what is going to be taught. From the scriptures. You're excited to worship together with people and sing praises to God. This is what we see at the birth of the church. That the people are excited. They can't wait to hear what they're going to learn next. They can't wait to be equipped so that they can go out and be a better blessing in their communities. They're excited for the apostles to break open the text and point them how the Old Testament revealed Christ. And now how Jesus is present with them always through the Holy Spirit. They expect to hear from God. They expect to be taught. This is a mark of a healthy church that we learn to think rightly about God so that we can live rightly before God. A healthy, transformational church 
comes to church excitedly, expecting to learn from the scriptures so that they will be equipped and then be scattered again to impact the community. And as the week goes on and in a healthy church, they can't wait to get back because they know I need that gas in my tank. I need to be filled up again. I can't wait to get back and learn some more. The job of the apostles was to hand down this pure doctrine to these new spiritual babies. They had just come to know Jesus, but they didn't know a whole lot. And so the job of this, these leaders were to teach this church what to believe and how then what you believe impacts how you live. And the job of the first gener- generation church after this happens is they must teach the second generation church what they are to believe, and how what they believe impacts how they live. And then the second generation church, the third generation church, and we are just part of that line where the Holy Spirit has empowered people from generation to generation to generation to rightly divide the word of truth so that we can understand it well and it impacts the way we live our lives. But this, this, this first century church, this new church, it's not devoted simply to study. The church was also devoted to fellowship. In the Greek, the construction of this verse is very clear that the fellowship consisted of breaking of bread and prayer. It's not four things, it's really two, but the second thing, fellowship, had two parts to it. Breaking of bread and prayer. And so, the apostles, they are teaching these people that, hey, this is what we must be devoted to. First, the study of God's word. Second, fellowship would consist of breaking of bread. It means we get together and we eat together. We're going to set aside some bread and we're going to set aside some wine. And we're going to remember communion. We're going to remember when we meet together each time who God is, what he's done, and how this unites us into one church. That the, you cannot have a supernatural ministry of eternal impact unless you understand that we are serving an, e- an eternal God who is supernaturally involved in the life and ministry of his church. That just because God had given the Holy Spirit, just because the Holy Spirit had shown up and taken residence in their lives, unless they had lives empowered by the Holy Spirit, then nothing was going to happen. And so the church is devoted to this, to continually remember that this is what they're giving their lives to, the ministry that Jesus had handed to them. Unfortunately, we've got churches today who are more devoted to worship styles than to real worship. More devoted to friendly social clubs than to real fellowship. More devoted to preferences than to prayer. God has designed his church To be a church that has this expectant worship focused on the teaching of the scriptures, focused on communion, and focused on prayer. That this is what a healthy church is devoted to, committed to, passionate about. Everything else becomes periphery. And then we see what happens in this church. It's filled with excitement. The the, the people, that they have this fear, this awe about them because God is doing amazing things. Supernatural things are beginning to take place. And the church is growing. It's electric. It's contagious. And the church, they're just shaking their head in wonder, saying, oh, this must be God. Only God could do this. Another mark of a healthy church is growing faith. Growing faith. 
the church devoted herself to the right things, just as God drew it up in his blueprints. And God just knocked their socks off as, as they were devoted to this. And healthy things grow. Healthy things grow. The church grew numerically. The church grew spiritually. And you see it. They're meeting together in people's homes. They're breaking bread in people's homes. There's no formalized way or routine that, hey, they're doing communion this way every single time. It's, it's the method wasn't as important as the heart behind it. And they're excited to, to be in each other's company, to, to be sharing what they had. I mean, you see this, right? They have everything in common, and they're selling their possessions, and they're giving to others who have need, and you see it happen. We'll look at it in a little bit in Acts chapter 4 with Barnabas. But some people want to use this first century church and say that the church embraced some kind of socialistic uh, type of communal living. That's really not it at all. This church is gathered together. And they're enjoying the fellowship of one another and, and enjoying the, the, the presence of God. And as they see God work, they begin to say to themselves, you know, I am more interested in the advancement of God's kingdom than I am the advancement of my own kingdom. That if I have anything that I could possibly give to someone else, it's just the, the generosity of this church, of our church. As we look, and we, we saw the need. Down in North Carolina and South Carolina, we got to hear Brother Bobby this morning just share about the impact that that has, being able to give some of what we had and just say, here, maybe it could be better, uh, a, a bigger blessing for you than for us. And this is what the church is doing. It's not out of compulsion. It's not because you have to. It's because I get to, that I'm a part of something bigger than myself, that I've been adopted into this family of God, this community of faith. And that causes me to have a real loose grip on everything that I have because I, I, I'm more interested in the advancement of God's kingdom than the advancement of my own kingdom. And so they share everything. Under the Old Testament, the Jews, they were required to give a tithe, to give a tenth of what they had back to God as an act of obedience. Under the law of grace, Jesus comes in and he doesn't reinstate the tithe. Uh, Christians, nowhere in the New Testament do you have Jesus commanding uh, people to give a tithe, to give a tenth. No, Jesus instead says that we are to give abundantly, that we are to give cheerfully, not under compulsion. But because we have this desire that we care more about the advancement of God's kingdom than we do about the advancement of our own kingdom. See, Jesus, he takes the commands of the Old Testament, and any time he reinstates them, he always one-ups them. They never stayed the same. He, he, takes, he says, hey, the law was the bare minimum, okay? You, you know what it was said in the law, do not murder. No, no, no. That's, that's the bare minimum. You can't even hate somebody in your heart. I mean, the law said don't commit adultery. That's the bare minimum. Don't even lust. And it's the same thing is true with giving. He says, hey, the law says a tenth. I'm saying just give abundantly. Give, give, give what you can abundantly, cheerfully, because you recognize that my kingdom is more valuable than this kingdom. And so this is what's happening. And I know, you know, for me, 
when I give, we have it set up online just to give automatically because I don't carry cash. You know, I just never have cash on me. And so we have it set up online to give automatically. And one of the things that I have to remember to do is during that time where the offering is passed is just to sometimes hold my wallet or hold my cell phone and just remember, you know, God, thank you for the privilege that I've had to be able to give towards your ministry, towards your kingdom. May you use it to advance your purposes here on earth. God has designed his church in such a way that healthy things grow. And these people, they're growing in their faith. They're growing in their love for one another. They're growing in their generosity. They're growing in the time that they spend with each other. And they're growing numerically as they're seeing numerous people coming to faith. And as the church grows in Acts chapter 2, you end Acts chapter 2 with this heavenly ideal of people just praising God and looking out for one another and caring for one another and enjoying each other's company. You you see this heavenly ideal of, of unity and love for each other. And then chapter three opens. And chapter three brings us right back to earth because the opening of this image, of, of this scene is this pitiful image of a lame man begging for some money. You see this man, he's been lame from birth, and he's standing by the temple. He had to be carried there each day by some friends, and he was just, he was just sat by the temple each day, just, just sitting there. A man who can go nowhere without help. A man who's dressed in beggar's filthy rags. He's relying completely on other people for just about everything in life. And you just think about him for a moment, and you can feel his despair, you can feel his pain, you can feel his need. He's never known what it's like to be whole. He's he's never known what it's like just to walk into the market. He's never known what it's like to run around and play tag with his friends. He's only known people who just walk around him on the other entryway into the temple. He's only known people who avoid looking at him. He's only known those who pretend he's not even there and he doesn't even exist. And then one day, Peter and John come by. And they're going up to the temple to pray, as they did every day, as as we read in Acts 2. And they're in Jerusalem. They're just going about their normal routine, just their everyday business. They're not going anywhere that they wouldn't usually go. And as everyone else shuffles by and tries to avoid this man and don't even want to look at him, Peter and John come by, and their gaze is fixed upon him. And he doesn't even quite know what to do, I don't think, because he has a hard time even returning it. And they say, hey, look at us. Look at us. Give me your eyes. And he looks up, and I'm sure that he's hoping that, oh, perhaps they will give me some coins and I can buy some food tonight. Instead, Peter says, silver or gold I do not have. But what I have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And before the man could protest or laugh or do anything, Peter grabs him by his hand, plops him up, and he, I'm sure, can't even believe it. Dr. Luke says that his ankles and his feet became socketed. He gives us that medical description. And then he is, I mean, he's jumping around. I'm sure he's trying to test things out a little bit. And he's leaping around and he's praising God and just enjoying being able to be made whole again, to walk around, to jump around. And he's praising God and he goes into the temple with Peter and John. And you can just imagine the gasps and the stares. The people are looking and they say, wasn't that the lame man who was begging by the gate? 
He said they're begging for money every single day. How did this happen? Who did this? Who caused this? What does this mean? Is this for real? What's going on? You can imagine the questions that they must have been asking. And Peter speaks up again. And he says, hey, it wasn't me and John who did this miracle. It was Jesus. That Jesus, it is by his power that this happened. That Jesus is able to give life to lifeless limbs and he can bring life to a spiritually dead heart. And Peter turns the healing of this lame man into an object lesson for an even greater truth, the truth of the gospel. And he says to the to people, the crowds who are amazed as they're witnessing this, and he says, if you repent and believe in Jesus, that you'll be completely forgiven. That refreshment will come to your weary soul. That God will live within you. See, the church, the early church, they had this clarity of mission. It's a mark of a healthy church. You remember back in Acts 1-8 when Jesus gave them that big, glorious mission. That you've been called to the witness stand to, to bear testimony of the reality of Jesus and what he's done. And how it began in Jerusalem. That it began in just the everyday places that are part of their life. Just the normal routine of life. And this is what we see now in Acts chapter 3. That Peter and John, they're just going about their normal business. And as they're going about their normal way of life, something happens. The spirit moves and they just know that God wants to use them to heal this man. And in healing, they're able to share the gospel. These are men living on mission. This is what a healthy church does. That we live our lives, and in the course of living our lives, we're praying and depending upon God to open our eyes and show us people who we can have gospel conversations with, opportunities to share the love and the good news of Jesus Christ. Peter and John, they, they share in the temple boldly. They, they declare passionately who Jesus is and that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is the only hope of heaven. And then you flip the page to Acts 4, and in Acts 4, the religious leaders, the watchdogs of the temple, they react. And they, they had thought to themselves that, hey, by ridding uh, Jesus, by getting rid of Jesus, that troublemaker with the crucifixion, uh, that we're okay. But now they have another problem. Now they have the, the church an empowered church. And here's Peter and John, and they're the living examples of that. And, and so they arrest Peter and John, and they attempt to silence them. This is the first persecution that you see in the early church. And, and as they arrest them, the, 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 uh, the oppressors, they try to lock up the messengers, thinking that this will squash the message. But the only thing happens, the message, the message of the gospel is unleashed even further. The church continues to grow and people continue to believe in the Gospels. These religious leaders, they, they put Peter and John on trial the next day. And they exhibit the same problem that you see in any false religion. Man trying to reach God, find God, please God, so that God will in turn deal favorably with them. And the tactics of this trial reveal that this is a faulty religious system. It doesn't work. With great pomp and circumstance, the religious leaders, the scribes and elders, they gather together and they give their opinions about Peter and John. And religion, religion finds great security in numbers and formalism and status. 
And they used this to try to manipulate the testimony of these men. That's not all. Uh, among the dignitaries that are present for this trial were Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, Alexander, um, John, all of whom were high, of high priestly origin. And Luke, he's just describing the Sanhedrin here, a court. It's like the Supreme Court, the Jewish Supreme Court of the day. And it was steeped in tradition of law and it frowned upon any kind of new teaching because this court, they saw themselves as the keepers of the law, the keepers of tradition and ancient truth. And now there's this new teaching that comes in and it's upsetting their practices. And religion just prefers tradition, the way things have always been. And so this governing judicial body, it's suspicious of Peter and John and they begin their interrogation. And they asked the question, by what power or in whose name did you perform this miracle? You know, they want to know, hey, how in the world did this happen anyway? You must tell us. And normally, under the pressures of, inter of intimidation, of tradition, of interrogation, that, that would be enough to rattle most people in front of a court like this. But not Peter. He realized that as he stood in front of this this powerful governing body of about 70 of the most powerful men on the planet at the day, that he realized that whatever power that they seemed to have was nothing compared to the omnipotence of Jesus. And he responds with one of the most beautiful, bold defenses of Christianity ever given. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, he makes this uh, just wonderful statement. He says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. See, the mission of Peter in the early church was never to pack the Supreme Court, the Jewish Supreme Court, with people who would rule the way they wanted them to rule. And so that then by having the right law, society would be made whole. The early church realized that if they wanted real change in their community, that it could come about no other way than by the name of Jesus. That it couldn't come about through government. It couldn't come about through legislation. It couldn't come about through the law. That God has designed the church to be the transformational impact upon community, upon civilization, upon nations. That to, to shift that responsibility and to try to put it off and to think that it's going to come about any other way is foolishness. The, the early church recognized her mission was proclaiming that there is no other name, no other place, no law to turn to. Only Jesus saves. Only Jesus transforms. And the clarity of this mission is at the forefront of every healthy church. And when it is diluted by anything less, the effectiveness of the gospel and the effectiveness of the church weakens. The, the, the Sanhedrin, they, they didn't know what, know what to do with Peter and John. They hear this bold defense, this bold proclamation of Jesus, and they know that a miracle has taken place, but the last thing they can do is endorse that Jesus was responsible for it. But they couldn't find these guys guilty of anything, so they just try to intimidate them some more, and they threaten them, and they, they, they send them away, say, hey, just don't talk about Jesus anymore. 
And the men, they respond and they say, sorry, we, we, we got to keep telling people about what we've seen and what we've heard. We have to keep sharing the gospel. This is our mission. We can do no less. See, th- these people, Peter and John, the apostles, they saw a world who desperately needed Jesus more than they needed their next breath. And they had compassion to tell people that Jesus had come to find them. And we see the same world today. A world today who desperately needs Jesus more than she needs her next breath. A a world who desperately needs the compassion of the church to go boldly and clearly and share the good news of Jesus Christ. Nothing less. The Sanhedrin was powerless to shut them up. So so they just threatened them some more. Said, no, you can't. You can't do that. You can't talk about Jesus. And then they sent them on their way and... As they go on their way, Peter and John, they immediately return to the church, to the community of faith. And there was no doubt that they were probably bruised from their night in prison and uh, awed by what God had done through them in front of the Sanhedrin. And they just needed to be surrounded by the church because this is who they're called to. These are the people who love them, who care for them. They needed their Christian family. So when you live on mission during the week, the church is not simply a nice place to go. It's not simply the right thing to do. It's not simply an enjoyable thing to be around good people. When you live on mission during the week, it's the only thing to do. It's the only life-giving place that fills just gas, puts gas in your tank. And Peter and John, they, they realize that the gathering of God's people is of more importance than any other gathering on the planet. That when they were together in the community of faith, that when they were together with the church, that that was of far greater significance, of far more importance than when they were with the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of the day. That this early church, they recognized that the gathering of God's people is of more significance. It has a, a greater impact than any meeting that takes place in the Oval Office, any session of Congress, any meeting of the United Nations, that it is only in the church where people are truly encouraged, empowered, and equipped for a mission of eternal significance. So all those other meetings, they are important for a time. They are significant for a time. But in the church, God gathers his people and he encourages them, empowers them, equips them for a mission of all time, for eternity. Nothing could be of more importance. In the early church, they had this clarity of mission. They understood that. And so when Peter and John are released, they can't wait to get back and go and share with the community of faith everything that had happened. And after they share, they pray. And I want you to see the type of church that's being formed. Look at Acts 4, 32 through 37. Acts 4, 32 through 37. Now the full member of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each 
as any had need. Thus Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. The church was unified in this mission, looking out for one another, caring about one another, giving to each other, supporting one another, not, not out of compulsion, not because they were forced to, but because they simply loved each other. God designed in his blueprints for the church a generous, loving, encouraging, focused, unified church committed to the advancement of God's kingdom and nothing less. Anybody would say they'd love to be part of a church like that, a transformational church like that where people just care for one another this deeply, where they know one another when something happens, this is where I run to. A church that you see people growing in their faith and you see numbers coming in because people are getting saved because the church is faithful as they go out and they witness and they share testimony. Anybody would want to be a part of something like that. This church had a clarity of mission. They were devoted to it. They were committed to it. Just as committed as my friend Scott was to just getting in the best shape of his life, just as committed as some people are to a variety of things, the church was this committed to the mission that God had given them. But sometimes when we consider the cost, when we consider the devotion that it takes to be empowered by the Spirit like this, we can wonder, do I really want that? I, I want it, but do I want to be that committed, that devoted. Jesus says, you can't do any less. This is the mission that you've been given. This is the mission of the church. It's of eternal importance. It's the greatest mission on the planet. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've called us to this great, glorious, grand mission the biggest mission on the planet that has been going on for over 2,000 years now where faithful men and women from each generation have lived rightly before you because they've thought rightly about you. God, help us to be a church who's devoted to the right things, devoted to the faithful teaching of your word, Devoted to remembering who you are through communion as we, as we remember that we are united through the body and blood of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made for us. And God, also a church devoted to prayer because we recognize that unless you are in this, we can do nothing. But God, you've given us a great mission to go and share your gospel to a lost and dying world. Help us to do it well through the power of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.